Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. With one week left in the legislative session, we'll be watching what happens with some major pieces of legislation this week that impact you. One bill that's getting a lot of attention is a hands-free cell phone bill. It took a major step forward last week, but there is still no guarantee it will become law this year, despite broad bipartisan support. This is my last memory of my dad. Greg Tukulski lost his dad to a distracted driver who struck him while picking up his morning newspaper. This is his final image of his dad. Lying under a blanket in a ditch next to a field that he farmed his entire life. I made a promise to my grandpa that I would never use my phone while driving. I know my grandpa would be proud of me. The hands-free cell phone bill is among the most emotional issues at the Capitol this year. This bill addresses the biggest single public safety issue that's facing us on our roads today. This is the fastest growing source of death and injury on our highways. It has broad bipartisan support and law enforcement backing, but also some doubters. The act of talking on a phone while driving is no more a lethal distraction than eating or playing with the radio, activities which you are currently not attempting to make illegal. All in favor, say aye. 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 Opposed, no. The House Ways and Means Committee approved the bill for a floor vote, but families of distracted driving victims know they have work to do convincing the Senate. It takes less than 30 seconds to kill someone. That's how long it took to kill my brother when someone was distracted. Some sought out Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka, who might go another direction on the issue. One of the directions is that we have more education. There's only one page of 800. Another direction Senator, is... that is a cop-out. So as you can hear, the Senate is under some pressure now. If the hands-free bill passes, Minnesota would become the 17th state in the U.S. to ban handheld cell phone use in your vehicle while driving. The governor says he will sign it if it reaches his desk. Governor Dayton toured schools across the state this week as part of his push to get $138 million in one-time emergency education funding. The effects of, of that are going to be just devastating on the children we just saw here today. He was talking about deficits across the state. One of his first stops was Parkview Elementary in the Rosemount Egan Apple Valley District. The governor says schools need help dealing with budget deficits as enrollment and expenses grow in some areas. Republican lawmakers say it will be a tough sell as the legislative session winds down. It is crunch time at the end of session, and obviously there's a lot of moving parts. Our focus this year has been on school safety. We feel that that's the most important thing this year. In response, Governor Dayton says the state can tap into its projected $329 million budget surplus. Republicans say it would just be a Band-Aid and not a long-term solution. Senate Republicans unveiled their bonding bill this week. They want to spend $825 million on public works projects. It's the same amount as proposed by the Minnesota House, but about half as much as Governor Dayton is asking for. $119 million would be earmarked in the Senate plan for roads and bridges, $216 million for projects at the University of Minnesota and Minnesota State Colleges and Universities, and $80 million for mental health crisis centers and housing. The House version of the bonding bill is awaiting a full vote on the House floor. University of Minnesota President Eric Kaler is urging the legislature to approve $10 million so that tuition can be frozen for students next year. 
Right now, in-state tuition at the U is $12,800. That could go up to more than $13,000 if the funding is not approved. We are asking for $10 million because our state appropriation for the second year of the biennium is $10 million lower than it was the first year. That was a, a $10 million swing that happened late in the biennial budgeting process last year. So the U is asking also for $238 million from the bonding bill for building and maintenance projects. Both the House and Senate have come in far below that number. And we continue now our conversations this week with candidates running for governor of Minnesota. We have two of them in studio with us today. First up, Republican Mary Giuliani Stevens. She is currently serving her second term as mayor of Woodbury. She says she brings a fresh perspective to the race and to the Republican Party. Her background also includes work as a lawyer, and she's been active with local nonprofits and community groups. And Mary Giuliani Stevens joining us in studio today. Thank you for being here. Mary. Thank you for having me. Uh, when you announced your candidacy, you talked about wanting to bridge kind of the partisan divide and how that was important to you. You are running as a Republican, but you are not, I, I guess, maybe an entrenched Republican in terms of statewide politics. Do you think that in some ways would make it easier for you to try to work with Democrats and cross the aisle and, and get things done? I, I think it helps tremendously. I think because I'm not part of the the partisan politics of the past or the gridlock of the past, people will look at my record as a mayor and see that I really was able to bring people to the table um, to, to accomplish goals. Now, I think Woodbury, the ninth largest city roughly largest in, city, in yeah. the state of Minnesota, what have you learned running a city government that could translate into governing the state of Minnesota? You know, as mayor, what I've learned is you can... You can be efficient and effective with good fiscal constraint and conservative principles and still have a thriving community. So I'm proud of the success we've had in Woodbury. I'm proud of the culture change to make it a business-friendly environment. Um, by doing that, we've seen jobs increase 17%. 320 new businesses come to the community just in the last five years. 3,000 new homes. And for our businesses that are there, wanting to reinvest and grow. The challenges, so that record I'd love to take to the state. The challenges locally are the state tax regulation and regulations being imposed at the local level that make it more difficult. So would, I'm up for the challenge to go address those issues. And we'll talk more about taxes in a moment, but this week, if obviously it helps if you're going to be running state government to have somebody with state government experience. You named a running mate uh, in the past week. Tell me about your running mate and why you chose him. Uh, uh, Representative Jeff Backer uh, from Browns Valley, Traverse County. For those that don't know, it's on the border of South Dakota. I chose Jeff for his, first of all, his experience in the legislature, and he represents greater Minnesota. So he brings a tremendous amount to the ticket, uh, both in his values and his work ethic. He's very well respected in the, in the legislature, and he understands the issues for greater Minnesota and those families in greater Minnesota. And I know in greater Minnesota, just as you were talking about in Woodbury, sometimes there is frustration about the, the taxes and regulations imposed by state government on local municipalities here in the metro area or in cities in greater Minnesota. Is that something the two of you would try to work on? Absolutely. I think that one of the biggest challenges facing Minnesota right now is 
um, our economy because it's growing at a slow pace compared to the rest of the country. And I think to address that and to really have a thriving economy, we need fair taxes, we need reasonable regulations, and we need a capable workforce. So one of the things, one of my goals as governor is to get us out of the top 10 of our major tax categories. We've got we've to move. We have a burdensome tax structure. We know we need reasonable regulation at a state level like a local level, um, but we can't just regulate to every what if. And then a capable workforce. Our workforce shortage is real. It's growing. We have to address it. We have got to bring our education system into the 21st century. On the broader issue of taxes, Republican candidates are often asked to sign a no new taxes pledge. Uh, would you sign such a pledge or have you signed such a pledge? I haven't signed it. I'm not signing any pledges. <laughs> you know, I've been asked to sign any. Um, my commitment is to re- reaching that goal that I said I would achieve, which is getting Minnesota out of the top 10. We're not going to be the lowest tax state uh, with our quality of life and our weather, but we can't be in the top of all of our tax categories. It's, it's stifling our business environment. Companies aren't wanting to grow, let alone come here. We need, we need our companies to want to invest here, to grow, to create those new jobs. That's what's going to grow jobs. That's what's going to grow the economy. So it sounds to me like uh, raising taxes might be a last resort when it comes to balancing the budget. Absolutely. I don't think we need to raise taxes. I think one of the things I've learned as mayor is you can be fiscally responsible with the resources you have. I don't know that we've done that in the past. I think that's something we need to look at. Now, health insurance continues to be a vexing problem here in Minnesota and across the country. Uh, Do you have ideas on how we could control that here in Minnesota? And for instance, uh, should Minsure be scrapped and Minnesotans be allowed to go on the the federal exchange? Yeah, I, well, Minsure is a computer program. It's not a, it's not healthcare delivery. Um, it's been a failure as a computer system, much like Minlar's. Um, you know, if it can't be fixed, yeah, scrap it. You can only stay with it so long. Healthcare is a big issue. It's the largest part of our budget, health and human services. And I think I'm the only candidate, but I have an advisory cabinet, so a 15-member advisory cabinet in the healthcare field. The goal being to get it to be patient-focused. Back, back to the you know, private sector economy. We've got to make sure that patients have the right to choose their physicians in a competitive environment. Part of that is price transparency. So I'm supporting price transparency in that area. Another big issue in the 2018 campaign will be gun control after school shootings, the Las Vegas shooting, uh, countless others. Would you back any efforts to uh, strengthen gun control laws in Minnesota? I think, the, I think what breaks my heart the most is that when a tragedy happens like that, we polar, polarize ourselves politically right away. What we need to be doing is coming together at the table for the things we know we can agree on. And let's get something done for once. Would you, would you so agree to something that maybe I, the NRA doesn't agree with? You know, I'd say what we should focus on right now is the school safety and the underlying mental health illness, because I think that's where people are agreeing. So I think let's get together at the table for those things we can agree on. The legislature's proposing some school safety measures. Um, I support that as long as it's left to the local control of how to implement those for their school districts. Uh, Final question, will you abide by the endorsement process? If you do not get the endorsement, will you end your campaign? I, I said from the very beginning I would abide by the endorsement. Okay, so not planning to run on a primary, in a primary unless you're the endorsed candidate running against correct, somebody else. Correct, correct. Okay, Mary Giuliani-Stevens, Mayor of Woodbury, candidate for Governor of Minnesota uh, in 2018. Best of luck to you. I'm sure I'll see you on the campaign trail soon and at the convention. Thank you. Look okay, forward to it. Thank you Thanks very for much having for me. being here. And up next, we're going to be joined by DFL candidate for Governor Rebecca Otto. Find out why she's choosing to give up her post as Minnesota State Auditor to run for Governor. Thank you.
And welcome back. Our next candidate for governor is in studio, DFLer Rebecca Otto. She is currently the state auditor, a position she has held since 2007. Otto is also a former state representative, school board member, teacher, and business owner. And again, Rebecca Otto in studio with us today. Madam Auditor, thank you for being here today. My pleasure. I appreciate it. Good to see you again. Now, why did you decide to leave your job as state auditor when you likely would have been reelected, perhaps by a comfortable margin, and decide to run for governor? I've accomplished all the goals that I had as state auditor. I had some very dis distinct goals, and I actually am very concerned about our state moving forward. It is an open seat, as you know. And um, I am concerned about our changing demographics, the lack of equality of opportunity. Uh, Mary talked about, you know, we're not growing business. So we're, that's actually what I'm going to focus on is local economies. So with my small business background, my education background, you know, I was a mom. I have, I think, all the right skills to come to the table, especially as state auditor, understanding good long-term financial planning and making sure that we're strong going into the next few decades. Now, as state auditor, you have fought very hard for the powers of your office, and you filed a lawsuit to uh, challenge the constitutionality of a law that the state legislature passed that took away some of your authority to conduct audits in uh, counties, and so you sued a few of the counties. Why did you feel that lawsuit was important and that that law should be challenged? First, it's not my office, it's the people's office. And the founders put this office in place from the beginning of statehood because they understood when it comes to the people's money, some people behave badly. So it's really strong to have a strong deterrent, and it served us very well since the beginning of statehood. Um, and the legislature attempted to privatize it. And so I put my hand on a Bible, and I swore my oath that I would defend this Constitution. So I did. I went to the courts. The Supreme Court only takes 5% of the um, you know, appeals. They took ours. And um, they provided some really important clarification around our authority in terms of auditing and protecting taxpayers. So I'm glad that we got to that place. The attorneys were very efficient with you know, their fees. Um, the legislature spent a whole lot more on their challenge in the courts against the governor and their budget, and they didn't get the answer they wanted. At least we've got the Supreme Court saying, yes, you continue to have authority over counties. It may not be as efficient as it used to be, but this is what the legislature has decided they want, and that's on them. So you did get some clarification, but you ultimately didn't win the case. Was it still worth it, do you think, to fight the battle despite the expense? Absolutely. It was my duty. And so I did, and it was worth it. And there's, the courts are saying that we even have broader authority than we thought. So there's some really good nuggets in there for the taxpayers. On the county side, it will be less efficient, but that's on the legislators who made this happen. Now, you have recently released an interesting economic plan. Uh, one of the several points uh, of your economic plan is to create a statewide bank. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us about that, and, and what would be the purpose of that? You know, it's an exciting idea, and North Dakota did it back in the early 1900s. And what I see is all these small business owners and micro-businesses, which is where I came from, who can't get access to capital. We have all these students that have mounting debt and, and future students who want to go to, into higher education who don't know if they want to take on mountains of debt with high interest rates. We have farmers that have a hard time getting access to affordable capital. So what this does is we create a state bank, and we're certainly going to look into this because I think it's the right thing to do, where we can provide capital, the needed you know, um, seed money for small businesses, micro-businesses, for minority-owned businesses, women-owned businesses. What I'm focusing is on strong local economies. We can help our next generation of um, small farmers. They need help too. And um, for student debt, low-interest student loans, you know, having an educated populace is part of 
um, a strong state and strong local economy. So it's really about leveling the playing field around equality of opportunity. And I know you're also concerned about the cost and the burden of health care insurance. And as part of your economic plan, you think single-payer health care is the way to go. Critics of that say it would be very expensive. How would you pay for that? Oh, heck no. We can't afford to do what we're doing right now. So we must do something different. The costs are not sustainable, and we know that as a state. You talk to a small business people out there that their premiums are twenty-five to thirty thousand dollars, deductibles of six grand, and it's for major medical. So I've got a Republican who said to me, um, he, "That's what he wants. It's a watershed moment in our history. People are getting—they're scared to death of losing their health care. They want to be able to make better life decisions. And we've laid out an evidence-based plan that can reduce costs by fifteen percent." cover everybody, and we can have better health outcomes. This isn't rocket science. And you say you want to build a modern transportation infrastructure. Again, that sounds expensive. Would that include increasing the gas tax or any kind of metro area taxes to pay for, whether it be mass transit or roads and bridges? You know, government does those things that we can't do for ourselves. And if we're going to have a vibrant, strong economy going into the future, that is part of a vibrant economy. But the other thing we have to understand is millennials don't want to own cars. We want them here for our workforce. We need them to stay. Um, we're not all going to drive till we're 92, right? No. <laughs> we I hope, might. right? So I, we have to have I'm alternatives. I'm closer to that than you are, so yeah. we'll all let you know. And our Minnesotans with disabilities, we need these alternative public transportation options where we move people efficiently. So they're all investments that we make, and it's a matter of prioritizing, doing a long-term plan. But would it require tax increases? It could, absolutely. Nothing's free. We know that. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Minnesotans are smart. We do know that. Yeah. A couple other issues we want to get to and we're running low on time. Gun control is going to be a big issue. Yeah. Uh, where do you stand on that compared to, say, like uh, Tim Walls, one of your opponents, who's gotten an A rating from the NRA but is now backing some gun control measures? People can count on me to be there for them and, and the, common, the, the interests of Minnesotans. When we have kindergartners in Minnesota practicing lockdown drills for active shooters... And they go home and ask a parent, and I've had lots of parents tell me this story, why would somebody want to hurt us? We must change our laws for our kids. We're wiring chaos into their brains and anxiety. So universal background checks, um, um, red flag laws, no bump stocks. We don't, high, don't need high-capacity magazines. So we can do this as a state and provide for safety. Lightning round in 20 seconds. Would you favor legalizing recreational marijuana as some of your opponents have Said. We have to have that conversation, and we need to decriminalize. We need to expunge records of nonviolent offenders. Um, we are taking away people's ability to engage in society. I want to deal with addiction, but we're going to. Ha- this conversation's coming. Let's make sure the public gets to be a part of this conversation. And finally, will you abide by the endorsement yes. process? You will. Okay, Rebecca Otto, state auditor, now running for governor of Minnesota as a DFLer. Thank you for being here. Best of luck to you, you. on the campaign trail. I'm sure I'll see you soon. Up next, Brian Melendez and Brian McDaniel are here for political analysis. We'll be back in two minutes. Some have dubbed it Watergate 2. Okay, only I've done that. But our state capitol press offices were flooded this week by a sprinkler head with a mind of its own. All furniture and equipment from all of the offices had to be removed so all the carpeting could be ripped up. The offices are now functional, just not as comfortable. We'll be working on concrete floors down there until the middle of June. I, I did save a picture of my son, so that was, that was the important <laughs> thing. Joining me now, Brian Melendez and Brian McDaniel for political analysis. We're going to fly right through this. We used up so much time with a couple of candidates. We've got to get to some important issues. We now have three bonding bills mm-hmm. on the table, but they don't really resemble one another. The governor wants $1.5 billion. The House and Senate, $825 million. Brian, how do they bridge the gap? 
Well, I mean, I think that how they bridge the gap is with negotiations. There are lots of other things outside of the bonding bill, like uh, like uh, tax conformity, uh, the governor's uh, education funding stuff. There are other things that people want that you can use the bonding bill to sweeten the pot, whether it be more or less. Is the bonding bill just going to become one big bargaining chip at the end of session, as it often ends up being? As it has ended up being, I think, in every even-numbered year of my lifetime. This doesn't look to me much different than usual. And they did pass a nearly billion-dollar bonding bill just last year. Mm -hmm. It'll probably end up being, my guess is, around a billion dollars uh, this year as well. Now, the governor, uh, on a statewide tour, not every part of the state, but he went to several school districts uh, touting that $138 million in emergency funding that he wants. Uh, Brian Melendez, uh, a lot of Republicans don't see what the emergency is. They just passed $483 million in new funding last year. Well, and, and I understand that the governor is trying to make the case uh, publicly about why he needs that money. But the people who are going to have the decision are the folks in St. Paul, most of them Republicans, who, who don't see what the emergency is. And I think until those conversations start happening, uh, this bill is probably a non-starter. Yeah, and the governor says 59 school districts are facing these uh, deficits. But Republicans say you give them the money now, they're going to expect this money again next year. Well, I mean, the, we just passed the, the, the education budget last year, $18.8 billion. Uh, the governor actually went to the school in Apple Valley that my wife teaches at. So that was, that was, that was fun, fun for everybody. Um, but uh, I think one of, the, one of the curiosities about this current proposal is it's not money that goes to um, districts that are having trouble. This money goes to all districts. I think it would be a more compelling case if he said these, however many districts, need this much money. Yeah, because it amounts to $126 per student across the state, including districts that are not facing deficits. So that does raise some questions. Speaking of curiosities, the hands-free cell phone bill, uh, Brian Melendez, it has broad bipartisan support, nearly 50 co-authors. Uh, it has passed the House Ways and Means, meaning it's going to go to a House floor vote. The Senate is still resistant. How does a bill like this with such broad support maybe not have much of a chance of passing? Uh, you know, it's a little bit like Sunday liquor sales, which took decades to pass. There are people who are against it and are not willing to say publicly they're against it, but behind the scenes they're not for it and they're preventing it from advancing. It, it's, it's a hidden dynamic, but there's an opposition. It's just silent. Many of those are libertarian slash Republicans. Yeah, uh, I mean, this is something that I think is ex incredibly serious. And as somebody who is working from their car most of the day, I am absolutely too much of an offender on this. So I, I take it very seriously because I know that I don't do what I'm supposed to do. So this is, this is something that needs help, but would increased penalties and education be as effective? Maybe. All right. Well, those, those are the choices they're going to have here at the end of session. Brian and Brian, thank you for being here. A new home for the Dayton's mummified monkey when we come back. Remember this mummified monkey that was found in the old Dayton's building in Minneapolis? It's getting a new home at the Science Museum of Minnesota. It will soon go on display in its public lobby so you can see it for free. That's all the time we have for now. I said mummified monkey. We'll see you back here again next week for another edition of At Issue.